Episode 48, The Clans of Israel, Part 1 When we think of tribal society, often we tend to think that it is a primitive one. However, that isn't always the case. The nation of Israel was a tribal society and they were far from being a primitive society, as we'll come to find out. So what did society look like for the Israelites then? Welcome to the History of the Bible. In the last episode, we talked about the census taken by Moses of the Israelites. We read that there were over 600,000 men prepared for battle. Yet, in that time period, having that size of an army would make it one of the strongest in the whole world. But that would mean that the Hebrew word had been misinterpreted. After the census was taken, the Lord would begin to give instructions to each of the tribes, mostly the Levites, as they marched towards the promised land. The first thing that the Lord gave instruction on was the way the Israelites should march and camp. As the group was facing and heading east from Egypt and the desert into the promised land, those on the east side of the camp would be leading them. While camping or staying put in a place, the Israelites would camp with the tribes of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun on the east side. To the south would be Reuben, Sibion, and Gad. To the west side would be the tribes of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. To the north would be the tribes of Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. Now think of this encampment as different circles. The outer circle would be all the tribes that we just mentioned. The next inner level of the circle would be the priest on the east side, and the Kohathites, a clan within the tribe of Levi, would be to the south. To the west would be another clan within the tribe of Levi called the Gershonites, and to the north would be the final clan called the Merites, also a clan within the tribe of Levi. And inside of all these groups of people would be the tabernacle and the innermost circle. This layout of the tribes and the tabernacle being in the middle is very similar to the way the Egyptians marched later on in history. The Pharaoh, who was believed to be divine ruler, his tent would be set up in the middle of his army. Practically though, this would be the best way to protect the Pharaoh and the tabernacle from being attacked first. It says in Numbers 2 verse 2, that each of the tribes camped next to their standard, or their tribe's banner. Although today we are not completely sure what the banners were, meaning their symbols on them, however, today there are some symbols that can really only be found in synagogues. It's thought that each of the tribes had a symbol of an animal, as well as another symbol, but not all symbols are known. It is believed that the banner symbol had to do with the blessing that Jacob gave to each of his sons when he was dying in Egypt in Genesis chapter 49. In order of birth, Reuben is blessed, well, sort of cursed by Jacob in Genesis 49 verses 3 and 4. Jacob tells Reuben that he is the first fruit of his strength, but that he is unstable as water. And because he went and slept with Jacob's concubine, he defiled his father's bed. What kind of symbol could come out of that blessing? 
Well, some sources show the tribe of Reuben with a lady without clothes on as their banner symbol. However, in modern day, the symbol that most represents the tribe of Reuben in synagogues is the rising sun. Although the only reason that it is thought of as being a rising sun is that he was the firstborn of Jacob, as well as his name meaning see a sun in Hebrew. But the symbol that is believed to really be the tribe of Reuben is that of water because of Jacob's words. Simeon was the next eldest son. His picture was of a walled city, or of a gate, representing the city of Shechem. This was a city that Simeon and his brother Levi attacked and killed every male inside the city. The reason that he and his brother attacked the city was that the son of the leader of the city raped their sister. Another symbol of Simeon could be a sword because of what he did in the attacking of the city of Shechem. Levi would be next in order. The tribe of Levi symbol is believed to be an image of a breastplate that the high priest would wear. Both the two brothers, Simeon and Levi, were cursed by their father Jacob because of their anger in attacking the city of Shechem. So their father cursed them to have no inheritance within the promised land. This curse was fulfilled when the tribe of Simeon was really only given cities and not land. They were mostly spread out throughout the promised land within Judah. The tribe of Levi fulfilled this by being the tribe with no inheritance whatsoever. They only became the priestly tribe when they stood with Moses after the golden calf fiasco. They would eventually get cities to have families in, but they were called to be priests. Next would be Judah. Their tribe symbol is believed to be the lion. Jacob blessed Judah as the tribe that was like a lion and that the ruling scepter would not leave the hand of Judah. Of course, looking back today, we can see that Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, becoming the Lion of Judah, and that the scepter, or the king, would come from Judah, which would be Jesus, whose rule will never end. Next in line would be Dan. The tribe of Dan is known to have two different symbols, which one is correct is not known. It was a symbol of either a serpent or a dragon. This is because when Jacob gave his final words to his sons, the tribe of Dan is said to be a viper along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its riders tumble backward. However, right before that, Jacob said that the tribe of Dan would provide justice for his people. That is why sometimes the tribe of Dan has the symbol of scales. The emblem of scales would make more sense because the meaning of Dan is connected to the same meaning as that of a judge. The tribe of Naphtali is next. Not much is mentioned about Naphtali and its tribe by Jacob. All that is said is that he is like a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. Therefore, this tribe symbol would be that of a doe, a female deer. Next would be Gad. Gad would also have two symbols that could be their banner. In Genesis, when Jacob is talking to them, he tells Gad that he will be a tribe that is attacked by band of raiders, but he will attack them at their heels. 
Either the symbol is a tent, which represents an army of soldiers, or a group of soldiers. It's believed that the name of Gad could be connected to the Hebrew word that means band of warriors. Therefore, it could be that the symbol of Gad is a bunch of tents representing the sleeping quarters for an army that is on the move. The next tribe would be Asher. Again, these are going in the progression of age from oldest to youngest. The only symbol that Asher is known to have is that of a tree or an olive tree. The reason for this is that Jacob said that the tribe of Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. His name means blessed or happy. The tribe of Asher would later be blessed by Moses in Deuteronomy saying that let him bathe his feet in oil. This could be where the symbol is thought to be an olive tree rather than a fruit tree. Ishakar is mostly depicted as having the symbol of a donkey. Jacob said of the tribe that they are a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfold. However, there is another symbol that comes up for the tribe of Ishakar. It would be that of a sun, moon, and stars. The only reason that this symbol is thought to be correlated to the tribe is that in 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32, it says that the men from the tribe had understanding of the times. This is believed to be the understanding of astronomical signs. But if that were true, it wouldn't come until later on in Israel's history. The next brother would be Zebulun. The tribe of Zebulun had the symbol of a ship. Jacob blessed the tribe with living next to the seashore and became a haven for ships. Eventually, when the Israelites came into the promised land, the tribe of Zebulun would settle with its eastern border being the Sea of Galilee and its western border the Mediterranean Sea. However, there are some scholars that say that the tribe of Zebulun's western border never reached the Mediterranean Sea. They're only next to the Sea of Galilee on the eastern side of their border. Next would be Joseph. Joseph doesn't get a tribe of his own, but his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, do each get a tribe named after them. Joseph is believed to have the symbol of either a sheaf of grain or a grapefruit. Jacob blessed Joseph by saying that he was a fruitful vine. However, because of his life being very closely associated with grain, from saving the grain in Egypt, as well as having a dream about sheaves of grain bowing down before him, this is believed to be Joseph's symbol. However, it never mentions the tribe of Joseph. It only mentioned his sons. This meant that Joseph would get a double portion of the promised land. Normally, this would be given to the eldest son, but Reuben lost the privilege by sleeping with his father's concubine. So it was given to Joseph and his sons. That is why we hear about both the tribe of Manasseh and the tribe of Ephraim. Manasseh was Joseph's firstborn son. The symbol for Manasseh isn't really known, although some records show it being a creature that looks very much like today's unicorn. The same for Ephraim. The symbol for the tribe isn't known, 
although it is believed by most to be a picture of a bull. After the two tribes of Joseph's sons would come the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin would have the symbol of a wolf. When Jacob blessed Benjamin and his descendants, he said that they would be a ravenous wolf that devours the prey. In the morning and in the evenings, he divides the plunder. These are all the tribes and their banner, or standard, that they gathered around while marching and camping. Now the Israelites, well, they weren't a nation yet. Just how all the tribes are split up based on their families while in the wilderness, the societal structure worked much the same. The whole tribal structure of Israel was centered around family. This would be the father, his wife, and their kids. Pretty much your basic understanding of what family is, the smallest unit in a tribal society. Multiple of these households would be the makeup of a clan. The clans would be what made a military unit. From there, the clans would make up the whole tribe. Today, the understanding and depth of what it meant for the Israelites to know what family they came from is lost to us. Because in most societies today, it's all about the individual. Even though we are given a surname, often called our last name, we don't take into much consideration of how and who gave us that name. We use the term my name or their name is. In reality, though, our surname is actually our family name, though many don't see it that way. When talking about a tribal society, family is extremely important. Not only is it what makes the foundation of society, but it is also a part of who they were, their identity. Later on in history, we'll find that these family ties, also known as blood ties, would cause many conflicting loyalties when Israel is given a king. However, that is for a later time, and right now, the Israelites are living as a tribal society. In ancient times, there weren't really any police systems set in place. Often, it was the duty of other family members to take care of each other as well as punish members of their tribe. The safety of the members of the tribe was up to the group to uphold. This also meant protecting each other when going to war. As we'll find out, when the Israelites go out to battle, they do so by families. And when there are internal conflicts among the nation of Israel, the tribes stick with their families and relatives. Besides defending each other as families, the tribes also had other duties to the group. The other two main ones that impact the family, and this is really why it was important to know who your closest relatives were, the two are blood revenge and the redemption of land and persons. We've learned about the redemption of land and persons. This is where a person is in so much debt that they sell their land, and if things continue to get worse, they will eventually sell their families and themselves to another Israelite to become their servant or slave. However, when a person sold their land and or themselves, they weren't normally selling it to some random Israelite. Often, it was their closest relative. 
This will really be seen later on in the book of Ruth. When a person fell in on hard times, they would seek out their closest relative and inquire if they would be interested in purchasing the land, and even possibly himself and family, so that debts could be paid. The closest relative had the option to buy the man and his possessions, or pass. If he passed on making the purchase, then it would go to the next closest relative. This would allow for the tribe and family to take care of themselves and keeping other family members and their possessions within the tribes. The other thing that it was important to know who your closest relative was, was for blood revenge. We'll talk about this later because the Israelites would be given a specific number of cities throughout the nation that were called cities of refuge. These cities are set aside so that if someone killed another person, accidentally, then they could run and stay in these cities. Because there were no police, it was often up to the tribe that would deal with the injustice and matters of the law. Although, if it was a larger case, it would be brought before Moses, and later on in Israel's history, the judges. So because the tribe's responsibility to handle wrongdoing in societies, relatives would implement the justice out on the members of the tribe. This is especially true when it comes to murder. Everyone in the tribes of Israel knows that murder is against one of the Ten Commandments so that if this law is broken, it would result in the death of the one that broke it. Often, the justice being done by fellow members of the tribe. However, what if the killing of another person happened by accident? There was no anger, hatred, or anything that would want for one person to kill another. It was purely an accident. What would happen then? The other family members of the one that got killed would immediately assume that it was done on purpose and would seek to put the murderer to death for his crime. The person who was related to the person that got killed would be called the Avenger of Blood. It was the duty of this person to find the killer and to kill them. However, if the killing was done due to an accident, then the killer would run to the city of refuge. Although, the Avenger of Blood could chase the killer down and kill him before he got to the City of Refuge. A City of Refuge was just a city in which a killer could run to so that they could stand before a court and let the court decide if he was guilty or innocent. God sets up six cities like this in the Promised Land. If the killer makes it to the City of Refuge, then he'll tell his story to the inhabitants of the city. If they deem it to be an accident, then the killer would stay in the city of refuge. As long as he stayed in the city, then the Avenger of Blood could not kill him. However, as soon as the killer left the city, then the Avenger of Blood was allowed to find the man and kill him. Accident or not, he was allowed to take the killer's life. This would last until the high priest died. Once the high priest died, then the killer could go home and live a normal life without the worry of being killed. It's almost like the death of the high priest reset everything. But if the people of the city see the killer to have done it on purpose, 
They are to hold the man until the avenger of blood comes. Once the avenger of blood comes, then he would put the murderer to death by his own hands. This may sound like an interesting rule, that it was the obligation of the closest relative to avenge their blood on the killer. But if the killer did the deed on accident, then he would have a chance to stand before a court by running to a city of refuge. Otherwise, it would be the avenger of blood that would take the murderer's life. This law was not only found in Israel. Other nations, empires, and tribes did it as well. And there's a couple of reasons why. One reason is that it punished the murderers with no police system set up. It was the job of the tribe to keep its members in place. Another reason is that it would also prevent a person from committing murder. It would cause the person to reconsider murdering someone when you know that you would have to deal with and run from the victim's whole family. The tribes were the makeup of the nation, and the families were the makeup of the tribe. Tribes fought to protect their families and loved ones, sometimes at the expense of other tribes or even the nation as a whole. But this is what made the society of Israel. We will continue to look at the makeup of Israel society through its social groupings within the tribe. So join us next time in episode 49, The Clans of Israel, part two. Until next time, remember that you are loved, special, and worthwhile.